Welcome, friends and fiends. This is your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. And I'm here to tell you about an exciting giveaway that Warner Brothers Discovery and Colton Classic Films LLC has put together to build your 4K Ultra HD film collection on digital. We are giving away four codes which contain digital 4K Ultra HD versions of Rebel Without a Cause, Maltese Falcon, and Cool Hand Luke. These are films that you absolutely must know as a film buff. You can get this code by being one of the lucky four people we pull from our newsletter list. So go to coltonclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and give us your email and your name and we'll sign you up for the newsletter and we will enter you in the competition. That's all you got to do. So please go ahead and do that. The contest ends on April 30th and we will send out the winning codes on May 1st. Thank you so much for being a listener, and here's your episode of Colton Classic Films Podcast. Hey, fiends of the pod, you are listening to a very special episode of Colton Classic Podcast, a mini-sode which is broken into two parts because we talked for so long with the amazing creative genius that is Brian Viglione, half of the famed Dresden Dolls. So we are going to give you the first half today, and the next Friday you can catch the second half of this amazing talk with this amazing person. I hope you enjoy, as I did, and have a great week. Welcome to Cult and Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends of the pod, to another episode of Cult and Classic Podcast. I am super excited for this bonus mini-sode today. I have with me the amazing and multi-talented Brian Viglione. How are you doing today, Brian? Excellent. Thank you very much for having me, sir. Oh, I'm. This is this is a uh, this is. You were one of the people who was on my list from the very beginning when we started this podcast to get in here. Um, and uh, for for those who don't know, how dare you? But Brian is uh, a very talented musician, among other things. He is an excellent drummer. He's worked with huge acts. He's, of course, half of the Dresden Dolls with Amanda Palmer. Uh, he is uh, work, He's worked with the Violent Femmes on their last couple albums. He's worked with Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. Uh, you've been all over the place, and your, your body of work is massive. Um, and really, we mentioned, we talked about this really briefly before we started to record here, but um, your genres are all over the place and multi-inspired. I, I, I always love listening to your stuff because um, like your current project, uh, NR, which people can find at nr1323.bandcamp.com. Uh, and I'll have these in the liner notes, guys. So check it out. Uh, it, it's sort of, it's industrial, it's jazz, um, it, it, it's just a really unique mix like what's that's your current project right one of many. that's one of a, one of a few but yes absolutely um, so nr really was um that started as uh, a friend of mine named james leon who had been um essentially creating and collaborating for the past 10 or 15 years but really self-admittedly has almost like no musical sort of experience uh, to draw on. He's really primarily a lyricist and kind of assembles various musicians to help build songs. So he asked me to essentially um, write and play everything on these uh, songs that he had been wanting to release. And he sent me um, about 10 different sets of lyrics. And he would just basically give me the guideline of like, I would love to do a song kind of in this style and then send one or two reference tracks um, one of which sort of happened to be uh, sort of like my life with the thrill kill cult, but the sort of loungy kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, essentially, but giving me um, 
you know, just one or two minor instructions. Like he said, I want to like a really quick uh, train beat on the snare drum for the intro of this song. And then otherwise, whatever you want to do is fine with me, which is great because that's exactly how I love to work and collaborate. Mm -hmm. I'm not a lyricist, song writer person as much historically. This project with James and our, and also a previous band that I had called Barf Bag, uh, which incidentally Thrash was punk with, brand, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Which uh, was with David Basin, who was the Dresden Dolls A and R guy at Roadrunner. Huh. That was a also a project where it was like, I don't know what this is. The people who asked me to come and play were like, "This is wide open. Whatever you want to write and play, do it." So that was really great because I would never ever call myself a songwriter, and yet when I was tasked to do it things sort of flowed very easily. And I was mm -hmm. lucky enough to be able to play the drums and bass and guitar and have sort of like the production aesthetic and idea that matched up with the, the people I was working with. And those records came out really fantastic. And again, approaching all this stuff from the point of like, it's just an experiment. Don't weigh it too heavily. Just fucking do it. Mm -hmm. Go for it and don't overthink it. That's kind of like the main thing. So NR has been great like that. Um, and, and as you mentioned about like my musical styles and as we were mentioning just before we started the podcast, having that element of really just being able to let your curiosity go and being open enough to go with it. That was a primary fundamental of the Dresden Dolls when Amanda and I first started working on music was like, let's never box ourselves in. If it feels authentic and good, incorporate it as it flows out of you rather than feel you have to really like overly scrutinize and cut away all these things that you aren't, aren't cool or don't supposedly fit in a thing. Uh that's what's going to make it most authentically you. And I think you find film directors like that too, where the intention is to sure. not try to like construct the next blockbuster that you know is going to be a people-pleasing thing that's easy to market. You try to express whatever feeling or concept or idea or reflection on the human condition, regardless of whatever those particular boundaries of genre might be or expectation that even your own fan base have. And that's probably one of the things that gets musicians maybe directors caught up the most too. You do something yeah. that's successful and then people expect the same thing from you again. And then the pressure's on to deliver. So yeah, playing with all these, so. you know what I'm saying? So like playing with all of these different styles, I work with a wonderful country rockabilly artist named Casey Lansdale here in LA. Out of that, we started um, a, a kind of this 1950s rock and roll revival, very much on like sort of Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis called the Oceanaires uh, that we did before we were so rudely interrupted by COVID. Um, <laughs> yes. NR doing the industrial experimental thing, Barf Bag doing the hardcore punk thing, my friend Kaylin Chase, all these different bands too. So mm -hmm. that has also led me through a wild array of uh, films that I enjoy and that have really affected my life. And, and you too. were working too with Adam Silvestri, Radiator King uh i think right as yes. well and that's and it's which i yes. love if anybody hasn't heard it's it's this really i was listening i was like what it's sort of like um i think of uh like hot water music punk but with sort of a rockabilly vocal yeah. track like it's just a really it's just and i love how you said um you've touched on two things that i think is really important when we talk about film uh collaboration and um true to the express what you want to share with the audience. Because mm -hmm. as you said, if you get pigeonholed, and I love that you and Amanda talked about that in the Dresden Dolls, and it was very clear, I think as a listener and a, and a fan, because I remember I saw you guys play together uh, in Exeter, New Hampshire, right before the release of uh, Yes, Virginia, and which is still one of my favorite albums of all time. And uh, 
you guys had put out um, like feelers for like any local artists to come in, you know, help decorate the theater, get involved, do whatever. And I mean, every time you guys performed, it seemed like that was happening. And it really, you guys have a community when you play. You know, it's not it's not just people going to see a show, which there's nothing wrong with that. I've seen tons of shows where I'm like, I don't know who this is, but let's give it a shot. Um, but you go in and, and when you go in, you're going to see a show. When you leave, it's like you've left your best friend's living room doing a really cool party where you've totally been entranced by everything happening. Um, and I also have to give a shout out because I know fans will appreciate this. I remember distinctly the moment in that show where um, Amanda turned around because you both were facing the audience, but away from each other, like at a, sort of a, you know, stage northwest, northeast kind of thing. And uh, and she hawked a loogie and spit behind her mm -hmm. and you hit it with your stick. And I swear to God, it looked like you didn't even look. <laughs> you didn't even look. You just hit it right in the air and kept playing. This is mid song. It was the most like startling uh -huh. shocking uh, it was the most punk really? thing i've ever seen and i've i've seen everything um you know my my band you know that's had... really the kind of telepathy one hopes to develop with your, yeah. your, your collaborators you know what i mean that you can just you get blindly swat the loogie you feel the loogie, the loogie, become the loogie and then you just you know you go for it i'm yeah that's, that's it was it was the force like. it was 100 luke skywalker it and uh and you both and you both i also remember you um shouting so loudly that it was over the drum kit um, at someone who was answering their phone in the front. <laughs> and and I loved it because it was, and, and it was so loud that Amanda heard it and stopped and said, what? And you go phone. And then she's like, oh, and you just kept going, just picked up exactly <laughs> that next beat, you know, which I mean is so in sync. And I loved it because uh -huh. I saw you do that. And I'm like, oh, that's the energy I do when someone's talking in a movie theater behind me. I can't yeah. handle it. Um, yeah. But no, it was, it was so it was, that was always, you know, that was the first time interesting I saw precursor, Interesting precursor to a whole new era, huh? That was what you, as you said, probably 2006. Now it's like phones are just omnipresent throughout live performances. And you hear <sighs> bands of older generations go like, oh, isn't it crazy watching that concert footage? Not a phone in sight. And they mm -hmm. are there, you had like, that was an interesting thing about the period of the Dresden also was we caught that weird wave of social media emerging into mm -hmm. culture and cell phones emerging into culture. And, and it was interesting because, and I mean, it's always, it's a mixed bag, right? Because mm -hmm. as like someone who loves cult films and weird ephemera, I adore being able to go and see this footage that I, I would otherwise have been lost to time. But at the same yes. time, it is so frustrating when you're there. And I'm like, and you know, I when it first became a thing, like I remember uh, I saw, uh, I was watching Cake at uh, some beach adjacent festival, uh, I think Doheny or something. And um, and I was like, I'd waited so long to see it. And they played essentially the entire Fashion Nugget album. And I was like, I want to see this. And so I started recording. And now I don't remember most of the show. It's devastating, even though I had the video. Yeah. Like, I just don't remember it. It was totally, yeah. you know, I only remember like the 50-year-old guy passing a, a joint across me to his wife. And I was like, that's what I remember of that show. You know, so I, it's, it's just a- Well, I don't know. Does that speak more about you? Or does that speak more about the band? That's and true. And also it sort of begs the question, like is the point of going to the show being able to remember it or just to like revel in just being there and feeling that wave come over? Totally. And it, you know, and it's, it's sort of you like, I, mean? I um, we, the, our intro music and outro music are played by the Chud who our, our listeners probably know by this point. It's, it's, it was my band with, uh, two fantastic uh, New Hampshire natives who are still playing uh, metal and thrash punk over there. Um, and uh, 
our shows were so much fun because when we're playing and singing, at least they were fun for us, which to me is all that's important at that point. I think if you're having fun, yeah. somebody else is having fun. They, it's like, I don't remember that, that those details, but I do remember how amazing it felt and how hyped you are when you're, when you're performing. And then that awesome feeling when you get off the stage and people are excited to see you like, yeah. Um, but you know, it's funny because I'm like, is that really how it happened? Cause I also remember being the cigarette break band. You know what I mean? Where like the, some new metal band would play, people would be crazy. And then we'd go up and everyone would funnel out to smoke a cigarette before the next band came in. <laughs> and you know, and, and it was just us and a couple of oldsters at the bar. So you never know, but. There's always those kids. That's the duality of it though. You got, it's, you got to sort of wrestle with the fact of like, how much am I doing this for validation from other people? And how mm -hmm. much am I doing this for just the sheer joy of the experience of playing, even if there's just like the janitor and like the sound person. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And those things are always kind of working. And even in a band where like you rise and have some success too, those things are constantly in flux too, because you find yourself on a huge stage in front of thousands of people who don't give a shit about you. <laughs> right, right. That's also a really amazing thing too. I remember one show in particular playing with Violent Femmes down in I think, Birmingham, Alabama, and we were sandwiched between Ludacris and Cypress Hill. And I saw my mother is... in the front just being like, <laughs> That is the weirdest Rolling lineup. Their that eyes. is the weirdest lineup. And like a few like festivals, who knows? They were like, you know right. what we should put between Ludacris and Cypress Hill? The Violent Femmes, so they can play their weird off-brand of, you know, like Americana, like folk punk for all these people waiting. You're like, it's, it's from the bong. Right, like, I can't, I don't not. know why Cypress Hill never did a Frank Black crossover. Um, it's, yeah. They're not, you know, it ain't over till it's over. It's, that's true, that's true. I, uh, yeah, I think Ludacris, I think it all would be as an ask and I think it would happen. I, uh, it's, it's just crazy. And you mentioned COVID too. And it's, it's, we just can't not mention COVID and how it's sort of blown the mind of the creative world. Like as a, as a comedian too, which is a whole nother game of, of like, do I enjoy this? Or am I just wanting people to tell me I'm great or funny? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's totally shut down, you know? And I mean, the yeah. great thing, this podcast has been wonderful. So happy to connect to listeners and everything. Um, but it's like, wow. Uh, I can talk to a lot more people like you because people tend to have more time right now than they normally sure. do. Uh, and at the same time, we're all insane at this point. And we only have a couple of things to talk about for the most part, um, because we haven't <laughs> seen anyone for, you know, 10 yeah. months. So yeah, it's Isn't interesting. So crazy. Well, you know, it's, it's, I have tried my best to, sort of use the weird momentum the what felt like the downward spiral which way am i going towards the camera of that <laughs> momentum mm -hmm. actually to launch myself in a new place and the best lesson i've learned because everyone sort of like is very quick to kvetch about like how terrible 2020 was i had a far worse 2018 yeah by leagues and it was like a three-year cycle in a weird way that just completed where it was like ultimate existential angst and like what the fuck is happening to my life to a huge year of transition moving from new york to los angeles and all of the like crazy fallout and and growth and beauty and amazing new people and new things that filtered in into 2020 where everything then just got flipped totally on its fucking head and my immediate mindset was like rather than sit around and bemoan poor little me and my problems, realize that this is happening to everyone across the planet. And yeah. the best thing for me to do is go like, cool, 
I can work, I've worked with far less. So what do I need to do? Or let me like whip together my live streaming, my webcasting, um, any music software, my home recording setup, and like learn some new skills that I had been putting off because I was busy just doing live shows and things like that too. And in doing that, I put myself in a better position than I even was in before. And I wouldn't have had the time to do anyway. Is there a massive downside to not touring financially for all musicians, nightlife people, like everyone who's lost a job? Obviously. But I figured like I would rather spend my energy trying to problem solve than complain. Yeah. Complaining is easy and we can all do it endlessly and go like, man, I had so much shit planned. Yeah, no shit. Right. But what are you doing? But, but this is, these are things like sort of beyond your control. So you can only lay in bed so long, like bemoaning things that you have no business trying to control anyway. It's just, it's happening. It's playing out. So how are you going to roll with that over the course of this thing playing out? And well, especially because we're the lucky ahead. ones, right? Because we, we have as creative people with, with who a certain extent of what we do comes from us personally, you mm -hmm. know, and we don't have to have the outside input as much. It's, it's been sort of a chance to, a lot of people say recharge. I don't know that I feel recharged, but I definitely right. feel like I've made ground on things um, yeah. that otherwise were on the back burner. And it's sort of that interesting thing. Then you get like, wow, um, like, I'm, I'm in the new Colton classic studio right now. Like we didn't have a studio when this started. And so like sure. when you, uh, when you get there, it's great. And then I sort of backtrack and I'm like, Hmm, a lot of people couldn't are doing so much worse than I am. I don't have the place to complain right now. It's not on mm -hmm. me. I just need to do what I can to reach out to others and, and, and keep people, you know, connected. Um, Cause that's what helps me, you know? And then, yes. uh, and I think that that's, we have seen a lot of that. I know that I, I mean, you and Amanda doing the, the Rocky horror picture live stream, uh, the music for that, that was wow. amazing. I mean, yeah. uh, and, and that's the sort of thing that has made this tolerable and occasionally downright amazing. Um, right. And that came out of absolutely nowhere, was like a, a complete surprise to me. That very day I got the call, which was six days before all of that music needed to be delivered. <laughs> Kaylin Chase, my friend who I collaborate often, he's got an amazing solo project, um, was coming over to my house to work on a demo. 15 minutes before he got here, his wife, Elise calls, who's working for the production company, Humble House, who did the Princess Bride cast. Yeah, doing saw that too, the, the Wise Dems, all that stuff, yep. Right. So she called and she said the, the smallest portion of this was the Dresden Dolls. She said, hey, we're doing this thing with the Dresden Dolls love to contribute a song. We're soliciting music from various bands. I said, yes, no brainer. What do we need to do to deliver? And I got them the song. Amanda and I recorded. Amanda fortunately had a gig in New Zealand. I've recorded my drum things here and bang, that was done. However, 15 minutes after that conversation, she called back and asked if Kaylin and I could deliver a demo of Once in a While for Barry Bostwick for his Brad character. That's awesome. That one song turned into four, turned into 18 songs in six days that I played drums, guitar, bass, took all the vocals from like Seth Green and Rosario Dawson and Jason Alexander and all these people yep. and edited all this crazy stuff along with like original cast members like Little Nell just to be a part of this. And Tim Curry, bless his soul. Yes. In like wheelchair bound, stroke ridden, but like just killing beautiful it. and strong yep. as ever and killing it. And that was such an immense honor to do that. And that was something that I went like, thank you, 2020. Like, yeah. how could I possibly look down on that insane learning experience and the great honor of like working with those people too. And again, and guys, so we're going to have these links in the notes because there's so much stuff out there. And Brian's 
you've been a part of yeah. so much awesomeness this last couple of years that I just, especially this last year <laughs> that, you know, this is going to be the episode that keeps on giving guys. So, so definitely check those out. Um, I do want to bring yeah. us to movies. And that dolls clip is on YouTube. That do the dolls clip yes, is on, on YouTube. It is. And it's, and it's, but yes, it's movie awesome. time, movie time. So, um, yeah, everything that, you had you gave me this awesome list you compiled of classics, cult films, movies you liked as kid. There is so much to go through. I can't wait to touch on it. And I have to say, your list is, uh, I would say, solidly highbrow. Um, in that huh. the stuff that you um, have picked is, it would be hard not to be able to argue that many of these films are cinema classics, whether or not people like them or not, which I think is mm -hmm. an interesting thing because oftentimes when I ask what someone's favorite movies are, they pick out movies that they really like or enjoy, which yeah. it's, that's certainly important. I mean, I, I, there are bad movies that I watch a hundred times, whereas there are movies that I think changed my life that I've watched a single time. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know that I can handle watching them many times. Um, <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and I want to, the one that's first stuck out to me, of course, because I, I actually just purchased a copy this week and I don't know that I'm going to watch it again. I just felt like I needed to put money towards this thing was, um, Sallow 120 days of, of Sodom. Um, and that's, yeah. uh, Pierre Paolo's, uh, Pasolini's, I mean, this film, if you can hear i've got a gardener outside doing work which is awesome i thought um, it was a plane going over here <laughs> yeah no this this film well, pasolini murdered for this film fucking yes, murdered yes this was his last film and i think this film is profoundly misunderstood by many mm -hmm. um as well as understood perfectly by many um it is yeah. the most painful to watch film i've ever seen um yeah. and uh for anyone who doesn't know it's it's a it was sort of his take on um, the Marquis de Sade's, you know, torture collection, essentially. Um, but it, it takes place where mm -hmm. so uh, um, Nazi fascists, and it's a period piece in Italy, um, round up, have a bunch of young men and women rounded up, and they pick the ones that they think are physically perfect, the rest are, are killed, and then they are tortured sexually, and then mentally and physically, the entire length of the film. And then at the end, they're systematically executed um right as the, sort of like it, it was sort of an exposition on like the power dynamics at play yes. in fascism itself and one of the things that i thought was easy uh, not easy um or maybe easy to overlook which is something that it took me and i was i'm always very interested in watching film analysis too and um, one particular person had mentioned that at the end of the film when the two guards are dancing together yeah that there's sort of this sense of like this something within the human spirit that even in the face of all this insane chaos and oppression there's this perpetual flower that tries to push forward and grow whether it's out of blindness which is sometimes a tool to just be able to cope with mm -hmm. that which you cannot control or just the like existential push towards not even necessarily good, just growth. And if yeah. you think about the oppression as like this crushing killing force, that even through all of that, you find a way in like the human condition that wants to, that will transcend whatever insane situations that you have thrown. And certainly the second world war was 
a place of, which is why you get films also as well, which to correspond like that, life is beautiful. Yeah. With Roberto Benigni in the concentration camp with his child and yet trying to make each day something new and special and not really, do you know what I mean? To transcend yeah, it's a the beautiful, it, it, it's finding the, or it's making the beauty in these situations. So it's sort of, yep. and, and you have to, I mean, all of this is speculative, right? Because right. as far as the, from the filmmaker's perspective, because we can only assume that in such horrendous tragedy, the way that people would survive and continue is to find these moments yeah. of, of peace that they often have to make out of nothing. Um, whether right. it's fantasized or, or just some private uh, obsession. And, um, right. and, and Solo is so, I mean, it's so impactful, number one, and I think this is where it loses a lot of people, is that it's just, it's downright unpleasant to watch because you're, you're watching yeah. what appears to be very realistic torture um, and, right. and, and sexual violence and violence and, and uh, haranguing. And violation and humiliation. Yeah, right. and, and, um, and it's, it's sort of, I liked that choice too, because what it did for me is it was one of those things where I, especially being familiar, I, I you know, I'm a film critic for horrornews.net and things. You see movies all the time that have horrendous things in them, but right. there's almost always this sense of cartoonish unreality to it. Um, right. And, and it's these subtle cues, either things are over the top or it's a sort of manufactured situation or manufactured reactions from people where it's yeah. this cue to your brain that this is okay. Everyone is playing right. pretend, this is not real. Um, yeah. And uh, Pasolini did not allow us that. Like he, yeah. in, in that film, it feels real, it looks real, and it's real in the way that this violence, especially on the, the captors, this, this violence and degradation is is a just commonplace mundane for them in many ways. You know, right. when you see people doing things so horrible and yet they feel um, they're acting as though they're normal, asking for a cigarette or, you know what I mean? Like these things are yeah. so normal um, right. to them that that it makes us realize that it's normal and it that's terrifying uh, in a way. Right. So, and it's, I, yeah, it's that common, as someone said too, about that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. And that it's like, it loses this flair. This also correlates to, I mean, these crazy things. You hear about these sort of like debauched, you know, parties go on where, you know, in this sort of like real world eyes wide shut kind of thing where right. like people with immense money. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein in his private island, That's you know? That's that. It's, it's the sort of- and, So and, we're not talking about, right, it's not fantasy. It's like yeah. an absolute direct comment and subversive as fuck to actually, during totally. that time, one of the major things too, I think we may look back on a film and go like, That's gross. Or like how disgusting. Yeah. But when you think about an artist who has that amount of courage to do something that directly relatable to like their own government in a time and then right. got killed for it, that's fairly bold too. So it's like, you got to, we also get so conditioned, I feel like probably as Americans, to just going like, well, where's the entertainment value? Yeah. And you can't approach a film like Solo or Martyrs uh, necessarily like that uh, yeah, too. It's Martyrs, uh, 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 Pasquale Laguerre, right? Is I think how yeah. So that was like a really, that's its whole other thing. And I'd love to actually touch on that. If you don't mind transitioning. Please. One of the, in, this was also sort of a state of mind thing. 10 years ago or so, when I was feeling in a rather dark place around 2012, 11 and 12, um, there was a period, I think when I was watching, I was actually sort of actively seeking out films that were reflecting this really dark, place that I was in emotionally and it becomes this kind of release valve 
which yeah. I don't know if like that's true for all horror fans or not, but watching Martyrs and also after watching a very interesting analysis about The Exorcist, mm-hmm. where the guy speaking about the film said, you know, I started thinking about The Exorcist, not just in a way of just pure sort of, you know, religious uh, quandary and demonic possession, but from the, uh, the point of view of childhood sexual abuse and that um, Reagan and the creepy old guy who creeps into her room that there's actually mm-hmm. a very interesting subtext which I'm sure was not what the director and not what the thing had but it's an interesting perspective that made me watch The Exorcist from a sympathetic view to Reagan and go like yeah. this is really true mm-hmm. children who undergo this type of abuse act out in these types of ways and it was kind of a fascinating spin to put on this old classic that I just sort of took as like, oh, it's just, tr- it's trying to gross me out, mm-hmm. but rather made me reflect on everything that happened to the characters in that film in a completely new way than what I had kind of been programmed over Well, and it's, and it's, and that's, I've, I, I love The Exorcist and the, the book as well by William Friedkin. And, and it's sort of one yeah. of those things where it's the, 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 religious overtones are so powerful and so strong that it often obscures the view from the other subtleties that may or may not be part of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, excuse me, William Peter Blatty wrote the book and, yeah, and, right, and, right. Books, and William Friedkin directed. And it made me wonder, especially looking at Friedkin's later work on this podcast, we've done a few, we did Cruising for Pride Month, which oh, yeah. is definitely an interesting, interesting if yeah, problematic cool. film. Um, but it's like, <laughs> you look at it and, and I think that there is, as you said, uh, enough content and context there to look at things like um uh not just i think a lot of people fight back at that idea that there's some sort of uh, mm-hmm. that reagan is is some sort of victim beyond a supernatural victim you know and that her yeah. acting out is sort of um a a reaction it's, it's a reaction to powerlessness you know which is what yeah. could stem from uh, uh you know sexual assault or mistreatment or any number of things and that's sort of just that sort of parental oppression or or adult oppression is something that kids feel all the time and act out mm-hmm. because of in small ways normally i would imagine and yes. um and i think that there's enough there especially with the but like you said it gives a whole new light to the film um when especially like the when she's stabbing herself with the crucifix in the really yes. deranged sex scene you're just like this is this is all of a sudden it makes a different kind of sense to you and it, then you start okay. thinking and wondering like what I have to watch it again now because now I have to understand yeah. what I'm seeing. Am I making this up? And and when you come away and you don't know, sometimes that's the right. most powerful thing because you've been thinking about it for so long. Yeah. Um, and, and I loved the fact of taking a moment to look at and examine that film of say, even just taking a giant step away and say, the phenomenon of self-harm, where does that come from? And if you just strip away the, the like you said, the, the, the religious element or, you know, kind of like God versus the devil kind of thing. And think of that sort of metaphor as like, where are those times when we in our lives have harmed ourselves in those different kinds of ways, where we're in such a dark place, unable to articulate the complex emotions, feeling trapped, feeling that we have to hide something so horrible within us that we can't express it, that we manifest it in all these other ways. And the people around us are struggling to cope and understand with our erratic or in ourselves, like are this kind of behavior, what's happening? It's just, but that is the really wonderful thing about art. It doesn't have to be, this is what it was about. That's, you can either accept it or not. Right. It's just, you can go in sort of like, huh, I wonder what if, hmm, I never thought about it like that. And that's what it's meant to do. 
It's yeah. hopefully like you encounter a piece of art that helps you then go, wow, you know, I just had a fight with my best friend. Maybe I could look at that in a different way. Man, I just hit this problem in my life and I don't know what the hell to do about it. Well, maybe I can think about it from a few different perspectives. And if I take myself out of it and turn things around and, you know, you wind up expanding your whole way of being able to deal with life. I, and I think about things and you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And I, I think that um, a lot of your list, not, not, I wouldn't say even most of it, but a lot of them like Martyrs and Salo um, and, uh, and you mentioned life is beautiful and um, uh, the 400 blows. Meanwhile, this, this is also like, we've started the podcast with like the darkest of the, the dark. Darkest, I actually thought I we would get to that like at the end, but yes. This I just, is that I drove it the... straight in. I drove the train. <laughs> I drove the train right through the station. Um, but, but it's one of those, those are things that we don't often touch on in American cinema. Love it. Uh, American cinema. And, and, um, I think I, I, there's a lot of discussion as to why American cinema tends to go for something that is, is packaged nicely and, and lends itself to a single interpretation as much as possible because it doesn't leave many doors open. Um, I don't think we can ever create something that is really only ever seen, uh, from one perspective, I, I think my mom was a writer, yeah. uh, is a writer, and she um, she would always tell me the story when I was going through uh, for for my master's in writing. She'd say this: she'd say, "I wrote a story once, and um, the it's it's a like a short story about a woman's morning routine, and it was really a, like a meditative piece about what this woman's." seemingly easy like cup of coffee or whatever it was is is about um like what it yep. really does for her versus what it looks like it does and in the opening there's like one line to a husband and then the husband's gone and one person in critique said i think she should leave her husband and yeah. it was just and it was so clearly a representation of that person's mindset and view at the time of uh, yeah. who knows maybe men or, or husbands or relationships in general but yeah. it, it's for her that was completely reasonable even though the entire story had had virtually no context to base that on if she yes. were to probably dig it in but we see those things from different cases at different times and i think some filmmakers understand that and invite that whereas others really try and hem it in and i would hazard to say most uh, probably arguably all the films that you gave me have that sort of open interpret they invite the open interpretation of the proceedings um harold and maude the 1971 oh. classic i mean uh, you know yeah. uh, uh 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 i don't know some people would say a disturbed young man with a disturbed older woman um yeah. faking deaths and I, it's just it's such a macabre but also sort of so beautiful, heartening though. positive movie in so yeah. many ways um yeah. and and it's um i even but and i mean it's had such a cultural impact even people who haven't seen it i mean uh, i think as told by ginger the nicktoon in the 90s they had a, a whole arc about harold and Ma, you know that was playing off harold and maude i mean this it's it's iconic whether or not we understand yeah. you know as kids or adults where these um pastiches are coming from and and that's yeah. one that i really i thought was fascinating on your list that um, one strikes me so deep i actually just watched that for the uh um uh, showed my friend that uh she had never seen this film and and it was interesting and i actually at the end of the film found myself looking at it at two different ways mm -hmm. but ultimately i mean that film again too it's you uh it's a trap in a way too that i think we're 
kind of conditions you to like go like, okay, so who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? I need yeah. to orient myself in this story. Like, what is the, what's going on? And films like Harold and Maude, it's like you have to remember there's like this huge overblown characterization of people going through things that probably in real life are more diminished outwardly but that feel just as intensely. How many times have kids out there been stuck with a parent who doesn't understand them at all and is trying yeah. to make them be a certain thing in life and they're just like, kill me now. My mom will never understand who I am, what I want. My family never is just like on a different planet. I must have mm -hmm. been adopted. And then to meet someone else so counter to the type of person that you're supposed to be hanging out with right. who absolutely not only understands you but lifts you to levels and shows you things in life and demonstrates a kind of beauty and appreciation for being alive that you never expected to find ever and that's what that film to me is all about and Maud is almost kind of this sort of like this like butterfly creature in a way where she sort of lives sort of just you know this particular finite time with a particular purpose in mind almost and yet at the end of the film Harold has undergone this total catharsis yeah. and learned so much through these things which are supposed to sort of crush and devastate and do but it's again it's like one of these sort of and and of course the the song by Cat Stevens you know if you want to sing out sing out you know if you want yeah. to be free be free there's a million ways to be. I mean, just like the the sentiment in that film is just absolutely beautiful too. And uh, it's funny. I remember watching it uh, one time with another friend who after we finished the film was like, what the fuck was that? Right. Yes. Like this movie about this old woman and his kid and the thing and what? And I was just like, oh, okay. But again, it doesn't, it just shows you and how the lens through which you're watching the film, how maybe close to home in certain ways yeah. or not. It relates, and I watched just before we started the podcast an interesting interview with Tarantino speaking mm -hmm. about the hateful eight mm -hmm. and um, the phenomenon of uh, he basically the interviewer said, Who's your favorite character in the hateful eight? And Tarantino says, I love asking audience members that all the time and hearing the different answers because that will absolutely inform your impression of this film depending on who you're rooting for. Yeah. So that's, that's really cool too about coming back to look at films when you're in a different place and a different person and you see different things in yeah. those films and appreciate it. It makes you can make you reflect on yourself and go like, oh, well, maybe everything that I think I perceive might be this really fleeting. That's that's you know, and that's impression. And that's a that and it's interesting because I I also teach college and I teach college English and um, I teach at a nursing school. So I often say it's sort of like it's like teaching financial planning to death row convicts in a way right they they know they don't <laughs> yeah. need me so much but um mm -hmm. but what it what would they do need or i think can help is this this idea the idea of um of under of analyzing concepts right this critical thinking skill that goes on and when you look at a movie like harold amad or I, I really like your um I was going to ask you about why you chose the hateful eight versus many other Tarantino films. And I, the amount of characters in there that are interacting, I mean, that's in the title, right? That is the point of this yeah. film in many ways is it's an experiment yeah. with this group of people who are, are bonkers, right? They're off the wall in many ways. And um, it really lends itself to be analyzed and discussed and thought about uh, afterward. You know, these aren't films that, that you watch once and and you've gotten everything and you move away and you leave you know there there are films like that that are and they're 
there's some that I love that are entertaining and there you go. But yeah. that's not what these films do for us if we're paying attention. Um, right. And paying attention, I'm by that, I mean critical thinking, which is something you kind of do have to learn, right? Because yeah. if you don't ask questions, you don't find these areas to think about at all. Um, and I, I think, uh, and the Big Lebowski is on here too. They, of course, Coen Brothers 98 <laughs> epic. Like, yes. it's so funny because the Big Lebowski is interesting because I find that I resisted watching that for, for years because yeah. I love the Coen Brothers, but many of the people that I knew who were like, it's the best movie ever, I didn't really <laughs> like their judgment. Um, right. And so I assumed, you know, it's sort of like when someone recommends like, um, and I'm not, dig I'm not digging on the Fast and the Furious, they are for a totally different purpose. But it's like somebody being like, do the Fast and Furious seven was the best man, you got to check that out. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I probably don't, I will because I watch everything. <laughs> but um, right. I'm not thinking I'm not going to be expecting a huge amount of, of, of yeah. in depth critical analysis after I watch this film. Uh, but the Big Lebowski when I watched it, I was like, Oh, this is a fantastic film that has this, like there are so many nuances and different weird things. And, you know, the dude's entire process from beginning to end of how yeah. he's dealing with the world around him. And it, it's, it blew my mind. I'm like, this is why so many different people are espousing this film because so many different viewpoints can find something to really sink their teeth into or latch onto. Um, yeah. And then there are some that will be able to look at it and say, oh, this is where I see me or part of me. Oh, but their angle makes sense too. And then it opens up this whole, you know, uh, additional conversation. Um, yes. So Absolutely. I really, I looked, at, I, look, I went through a period where I was like, it was kind of like comfort food. Like mm -hmm. maybe some people turn, turn on you, your favorite TV show and stuff. And <laughs> at a particular time when you're just feeling kind of like, like maybe at a bit of a, a low ebb or a, some kind of plateau and uh there was something sort of uh, comforting about the camaraderie in its weird disjointed way for me um about the journey of the dude and eventually being able to kind of let go i mean like the dude abides that sort of just is like, and, and all the things that have unfolded from it, like, you know, the dude de Jing and all these kinds yep. of thing and this sort of like correlations between Taoism and just kind of going with the flow and mm -hmm. all of that kind of thing, to me actually resonated a lot and I thought were just hilarious, but also rang very true. I, the Tao de Jing was a book that changed my life when I wrote it when I was 21 for sure. And I was like, what an amazing way to think about things. Um, but that sort of just being able to go with the flow, even through these circumstances that you you don't really understand that it feels like things you just the the dude ultimately is able to let go. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And that's kind of a, a beautiful thing too, amongst the chaos and the like nefarious intentions and and he doesn't always win. And he's not even always yeah. happy, but he <laughs> continues and yeah, persists. Exactly. And that's one of those things where I think, yeah. especially when it's reduced down to like, um, you know, uh, I mean, I love swap meets and flea markets and, you know, I still see, you know, the cheap, you know, iron on like dude silhouettes, you know, <laughs> the dude abide shirts right. all the time. And it's, sure. it's one of those things where I'm like, you end up, it ends up being a totally different kind of concept for people when you reduce it yeah. and it keeps going. And yeah. I mean, I, this, and you can't see this office because it's one in a mess. And two, I have this beautiful backdrop here for Colton classic podcast. If you're watching yes. on YouTube, but it is full of referential <laughs> crap that I absolutely adore. Right. And to me, I don't look at it and I don't think, um, oh, ha, ha like a comic strip, funny joke. 
love i have plenty of comic strips too but like it's i see it and it triggers this entire reliving moment of watching this movie and feeling this way and you know identifying with this and and bittersweet and all these things happen when we um when we have analyzed these movies to the point where they become a part of us you know because they reflect a part of us right like i think definitely um and the cool thing about lebowski is that the kind of impressionistic thing too trying to describe the plot of the big lebowski is often a lot more difficult and it's like this guy and he gets his rug peed on and then his friends band together and there's a <laughs> porn guy who thinks it's thing and there's these other like nihilist people who are in a weird like German band and there's the, the Maud Lebowski and then the detective guy and uh, then Donnie dies and, there, it's and like, Sam Elliott this makes bes- us feel better at the end you know <laughs> amazing yeah but that's the kind of thing is that you get it's almost like sort of larger like opaque impressions of feelings of life mm-hmm. and moving through these like crazy situations too with like these kind of like archetypal characters too yeah exactly like just like, like the narrator character yeah. kind of like looking down over everything and sort of gently letting things go understanding that there's like there's not even a point to necessarily and things working themselves out yeah. bunny lebowski comes back it's okay it didn't actually matter what the dude did did he triumph or not everything worked out okay in the end people come people go you know we lost Mm -hmm. donnie but ultimately that's the nature of life and as long as you can remember that in the times of feeling totally powerless like the dude to let go and abide and just go with it that to me is sort of a takeaway and to you know appreciate your friends for their faults better and worse too. The dynamic between the dude and Walter and Donnie is hilarious and super true to life. So much, yes. And I mean, you want those ride or die people with you, right? Like they do not help at all, Um, but they try. And you're you're sort of like, there's, I, I think so many of us who are lucky enough to have those people like that in our lives, there are so many yeah. moments where we've gone through and we like it better because they're there, even when they yes. didn't really do anything or sometimes just ended up messing things up again. Thanks for listening, friends and fiends of the pod, to this first half of our interview with Brian Viglione. Remember to tune in next Friday for our second and final mini where we conclude this interview. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and we can't wait to have you listen to us next week. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.